Hi everyone, welcome back to Pull Quotes. We are back for season three, episode seven. I'm joined in studio this week by our producer, Tanya Serik, and our guest producer, Grace Will-Smith. Now, before we get to our guests for this week, I want to play you this clip. Bring us that update. Really appreciate it, Chris. My pleasure. That's Chris Murphy oh, of I'm The falling. Weather Network. Oh no. Oh no. Is he okay? The Are wind okay? just blew me down. Oh my gosh. I'm okay. The wind, Are you the wind sure? just blew me down. Oh my gosh. I'm yep. sorry. We've had gusts up to 120 kilometers an hour in Okay, get inside. Be safe. Thank you so much, Chris. Well, you might have been watching the news or maybe you saw it go viral on Twitter, but that sound there was 121 kilometer per hour winds knocking meteorologist Chris Murphy off his feet into a snowbank. He was reporting in St. John's, Newfoundland during one of the biggest blizzards in the province's history. The storm sent the city into a state of emergency. Cars were banned from the roads and the military was called in to help clear a record-breaking 76.2 centimetres of snow, which lasted eight days. And while this viral moment was of course funny, it's a reminder of the risky work that goes into covering emergencies. Overall, the media coverage and the social media posts coming out of St. John's were pretty funny, including snowboarders taking to the streets and people enjoying their time off with a bag of storm trips. But that doesn't mean that newsrooms didn't have to be cautious. We caught up with Chris Murphy and his manager Dana Vitis from the Weather Network to talk about staying safe in this emergency. Welcome to Pull Quotes. Thanks for having us. Our pleasure. So Chris, I know that on Power and Politics there was this viral video that was going around (laughs) a few weeks ago. (laughs) Could you tell us a bit about what happened there? Well, that was uh, pretty much at the height of the blizzard. There had already been close to 70 centimetres of snow down, and the winds were sustained at 100 kilometres per hour, and they were gusting at about 120 to 130 kilometres per hour. What made that uh, extra special and the reason why there was such a topple was because I was standing in a snowbank. So imagine you standing on the ground and somebody pushing your shoulders. You'd probably use one of your legs to go behind you and break your fall. Well, I did not have that option in the snowbank, which was between my knees and my thighs. So essentially, when one of those gusts hit, and it was at the end of the interview, so I was kind of letting my guard down a bit, I just I hit my tipping point and went clean over. So if I was on street level, I would have been able to uh, withstand that, as I had in many of my other reports. But in that particular example, we'll call it le- lesson learned. It was one of those things. I hope nobody saw that. Oops, everybody saw it. Yes. <laughs> and, and had you ever experienced anything like that before? No, that storm was one for the books. And I was talking to some, like, battle-hardened, long-time Newfoundlanders, and they were saying that the the city of St. John's, had, they don't ever recall seeing a storm like that before. Um, sure, I mean, blizzards and, and St. John's go together like bacon and eggs. But this one was different, and this one was fierce. Wow. And and Dana, for you, when, when you have those conversations about sending a meteorologist into a storm and into emergency situation, what are some of the things that you, you think about? Yeah, so the first thing we look at is, you know, do we want to be there to bring to our viewers the storm, be able to tell the story from ground level? So we kind of have to make that decision. Is this something that it's worth, you know, sending our team somewhere to cover? And especially when we have to fly someone remotely or when we're dealing with hurricanes, for example, and we have to fly someone to an island. And then the next thing we sort of look at is really the details of the forecast and the dangers associated with that. So we won't just send anyone to any storm. We usually have people here with various skill sets, 
and various realms of knowledge with regards to covering storms. So we have a group of meteorologists here who have chased hurricanes for years, and they're very comfortable with hurricanes. And then we also have a group who's more comfortable with blizzards and a group who's more comfortable with tornadoes because they all bring their own unique set of risks. And so then we decide, okay, who do we think could handle this situation? And that also goes for our camera people, because we're also sending camera people there. So we have to make sure they're comfortable with the situation. So first and foremost, we brief people on the situation, and we ask them, are you comfortable going into this situation? Knowing that we'll take every safety measure possible, but are you comfortable? And if they're okay with it, and they're fine to go and cover that storm, then we start to look at the logistics. So when can we fly them in, keep an open-ended flight home just in case, and then the next thing we do is kind of start a checklist of what they need to do when they get there. If it's something where it's going to be so potentially dangerous that it's life-threatening, we likely won't send someone there. Why is it important to actually go to, to where the storm is happening and understand what's going on there? What impact does that have? For me to go there would mean, first of all, there's instant recognition. Secondly, we don't go to these situations very often, so they know that, oh, if if the weather network's here, then we know we should take this serious, correct? You can reassure people, but you also learn a lot more about them. And what happens is that the story becomes, yes, it's still about the storm, but it becomes more about how are people coping with it? How are people handling it? And what are people thinking and how did they prepare for it in the aftermath? In those situations when you, you know that a state of emergency is going to be declared or in you're in an actual state of an emergency situation, how do you manage as, as reporters and, and as cameramen, how do you manage not being able to drive around? Like how do you get to the situation to actually report on it? We walked in some cases through thigh deep snow, but we, we got out to where people were, where uh, the locals were out shoveling. There were teams of people helping each other out, so that was amazing. Now, the media is kind of a, a gray area. Some, some will say, well, it's an essential service, we're going out. And I'm not going to name any names, but there was, another, there was another media service there. They decided to drive during the ban, and they got stuck, and they had to get a tow truck to come in. So there, were, there was an example of another media source using maybe thinking they could take liberties with the ban, and they, uh, they had to, as a result, use some of the resources there. We did not. We respected the ban fully. Dana, for you, like, do you find that that is something that's happened time and time again? Do, do media sometimes ignore the, the rules that are, are put in place? <laughs> it's, it's hit or miss. Uh, we've seen both, and we'll see that oftentimes, uh, especially in hurricane situations where a hurricane has come through and, and ravaged an area or in the height of the hurricane, and... It's really a matter of risk assessment for the team that's involved. And there's situations such as a hurricane where if they've got a state of emergency and they've told all people to get off the road, as, as media, you can go out and take that risk, but two things will happen. Either one, uh, something bad will happen and no emergency services can get to you, so you're kind of, you know, on your own in that case, or two, you end up becoming a bit of a hindrance on emergency services, and then they have to go and risk themselves to get you. What we demand of our folks when they're out there is to really make sure that you're not putting any added pressure on emergency services, because that's not fair to the people that live there. As someone who's coming in and is just there to experience the storm, report on it, and leave, it's not fair to people there or the emergency services to put any added pressure on them. Well, thank you so much, both of you, for, for uh, talking to us today about this. Thanks for having us.
That was Chris Murphy and Dana Vatisse from The Weather Network. Now, in 2017, the Ryerson Review of Journalism covered just this topic, about how journalists report on disasters. They shared their experiences at the scene and how reporting affects different communities. The feature also suggested ways to better report on these disasters. Dana Goldfinger is the journalist behind this multimedia feature, and she joins us on the line now. She's now a local online journalist in Barrie, Ontario for Global News. So we know that you wrote this major multimedia feature um, back in 2017 for the Ryerson Review of Journalism. So I just want to start with why you decided to cover this story. So at the time, there was a number of natural disasters happening all around the world. I decided to respond to this and sort of look at the coverage in terms of how we cover natural disasters. Mm -hmm. And what were some of the things that jumped out to you at the time that made you want to cover that? So there were more so questions that I had about disaster coverage. One of the things is how are we actually reporting on disasters? Is the information as as informative and as in-depth to the public as it could be? What are the ethical concerns surrounding reporting on disasters? What are journalists' actual personal experiences reporting on these disasters? And as well, how do experts in the field feel that journalists can improve on reporting on these types of events? We sent out a survey to the major Canadian newsroom about how those newsrooms prepare their journalists who are going into disaster situations and what plans are in place if something adverse happens while they're there and the resources available once they come home, should they experience uh, some sort of physical or mental effect from the disaster. And in terms of those responses you got from that survey, did did you find that most newsrooms were prepared to make sure that their journalists had the right resources and means to get to these places? What we did was we sort of split the survey up between uh, staff journalists and freelance. And what we found is that some places were prepared to send their staff journalists into disaster zones. Um, but when it came to freelance journalists, in many, many cases, there was not enough preparation for journalists who were freelance and going into these disaster zones. Yeah. And, and, and what stories did you cover yourself um, in terms of emergency reporting? What lessons did you learn maybe from writing the story and then actually doing that work? The one main thing that, that really stuck out to me when I was working on this project was that there wasn't enough coverage on the aftermath of disasters. So there were a lot of experts that were saying, and I was hearing over and over again, that while the media tends to cover the disaster as it's happening, once uh, municipalities or cities or whichever community is in recovery mode, then the coverage sort of tends to drop off a bit. Mm. And so... That was something that I applied to my work reporting on disasters. So the past spring, spring 2019, uh, I covered uh, the 2019 Muskoka floods uh, for Global's website. Um, So I was reporting from the desk. Of course, I was doing the reporting while the floods were happening. But then a couple weeks after uh, when the municipalities, the Muskoka municipalities were in recovery mode, I had decided while looking at my disaster work and being like, you know what, I need to be looking at the aftermath and how these municipalities are recovering 
from this flooding that just hit. I worked on a feature about that. I spoke to some people who were directly affected, but I also spoke to some experts about recovery and sort of where to move forward for the future. And that was uh, one way how I applied my learnings from the disaster project with the RJ to my work uh, now as a working journalist. Wow, that's, that's super interesting. And, and why is it important to cover the aftermath uh, of a disaster? There's various different effects that happen because of a disaster, um, whether they're physical effects on residents' homes, um, the infrastructure of a municipality, or mental health effects as well. Um, and these effects can go on for months, if not years, depending on the magnitude of the disaster and how adversely that a single person is affected by it. Thank you so much, Dana. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for the chat. That was Dana Goldfinger. She is a local online journalist in Barrie, Ontario at Global News. So what is it like to report a major disaster? Back in 2016 and into 2017, the Fort McMurray fires destroyed hundreds of homes in the region. On May 3rd, 2016, the wildfires swept through the community, forcing the largest wildfire evacuation in Alberta's history, with upwards of 88,000 people forced from their homes. When the CBC opened their bureau in Fort McMurray, David Thurton, a national reporter in the CBC's Parliamentary Bureau, covered the fires and the aftermath. Welcome to Paul Quotes, David. It's good to be here. So I want to start from the beginning when you first heard that you were going to be going to Fort McMurray and setting up a bureau there with the CBC. What were some of the conversations uh, that you had with your colleagues in terms of how to cover these fires? It was, almost, it was almost just like, you know, the basics of like food, shelter, how we're going to find that, you know, in a town that's basically trying to get back after a devastating wildfire. But I mean, there were some conversations around, around safety, air quality might be an issue, maybe not overall in Fort McMurray, but certainly if you have to do some reporting in the communities where, which were just leveled by the wildfire, there are all these heavy metal stuff that's gone up in flames, but it's still toxic and lying there. So take a couple of masks um, and use common sense and your, your precautions. I mean, for the most part, you know, as a journalist, you just want to get in, you want to start telling the story. So that wasn't, you know, foremost in my mind, but it certainly was in the back of it. And, and what did it feel like getting into that situation in a community that, you know, you hadn't reported on before? Um, what were some of the things you had to be mindful of in covering an emergency situation? I, I arrived on Canada Day in, in 2016. And the thing is, a lot of people were just coming back into the community after having been evacuated. Like a community of 90,000 people were, was, was forced to leave for a month which is kind of incredible. Like in the past, we've heard of communities being evacuated maybe for a couple of days, maybe for a week. I mean, for me, I was just like wondering, like, do people want to talk to me? Like they've been saturated with so much media coverage. Um, are they going to want to, you know, keep telling their story? I was wondering if Canada would still be interested because for the most part, we tend to lose a lot of interest after the, the big fire is out. Those were kind of the things that I was I was thinking about, but it, it turned turns out like Canada had a huge appetite for this story. What are some of those stories that you remember covering that maybe really resonated with you, and and what were some of those things you had to be sensitive about when you when you got in there? Like the, the story did not finish with when the flames were out. I mean, although like most of the national media left and 
kind of lost interest with the story. You know, in the first couple of months, how soon can we rebuild? When can we get permits? When can we get building and development permits from the city to, to get going? A lot of people haven't even, didn't even, weren't allowed to return to their house, houses. So I think it wasn't until the fire happened in May 2016, and some people were still not allowed to return to their communities until like October, because it wasn't safe. It was so toxic. Some houses were damaged. Some weren't. The inspections weren't complete. So there were so many stories. Like even now, uh, you can do stories on on those things. It, it's still very much a disaster that that's ongoing. Were people open to talking about these these stories to you? You always feel as a journalist that you're intruding on people's privacy, and you always tread delicately because these people have experienced so much trauma. You know, not knowing if their loved ones or friends were able to get out, and then just the stress of rebuilding their homes. Someone want to talk to me about the PTSD or the suicidal thoughts that they're having. It, it turns out people do want to talk about that. I found people saying like, "Thank you. I, I'm so glad that the CBC is here. I'm so glad that we there's a national news outlet to tell our stories." Because prior to to me being there, there was just you know fly-in, drive-in reporters from Global CTV and, and CBC who, who came in. What did you learn from this experience and how has it informed your reporting now in, in Ottawa? You know, I, I've learned it, it's important to, to go to where the story is. Like so much of the reporting nowadays is done through Facebook, through Twitter. And we do so much research online before we even leave the newsroom. But like oftentimes, like you just need to get out there. And we need newsrooms that have the courage to just let reporters just go out with, without a plan, without the story half written. We also need to invest in reporting in remote communities that is constant. Like we could not, we would not be able to tell the kind of stories that we were able to tell to build the trust within the community unless we we lived there, unless people saw the CBC car driving around, unless we had a, a permanent office space. Unless people saw me in the grocery store, there's a certain amount of credibility that comes with saying that, hey, I'm not calling you from Edmonton. I'm not calling you from Toronto. I'm calling you from Fort Mac. We're still doing it. We haven't pulled out of Fort McMurray, even though I've left. There's a new reporter there, Jamie Malbuff. And so I think this is a model that maybe the public broadcaster needs to think about. Maybe it needs to be in our mandate that, you know, when significant stories happen, that the national broadcaster or CTV and global, part of their licensing fees is to give these communities coverage. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. Um, it's been really interesting to hear about your experience. No problem. Thank you for, for, for thinking about me. So that's it for our show, but I'm sure the conversation doesn't stop there. What do you think about how reporters cover natural disasters and states of emergency? Let us know your thoughts on Twitter at Ryerson Review and on Instagram at The Ryerson Review. Our podcast was produced by myself, Tanya Sarek, and our guest producer, who is from Newfoundland and says she experienced some extreme storm FOMO, Grace Wells-Smith. And our editor is Ashley Fraser. Special thanks to technical help from Angela Glover. And thanks to our guests this week, Chris Murphy, Dana Batiste, David Thurton, and Dana Goldfinger. Our executive producer is Sonia Fatter. See you next time.